Would you bow your heads with me? Majestic Father, we bow our heads in reverence for you are steadfast and righteous, good and forgiving. Let us hear what you would speak to us this morning through your word. Help us soften our hearts so that we would not turn back to folly. Lord, teach us your ways that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name so that we would not long to serve our own desires. Jesus, redeem us from all iniquity and from our vain conversations. Give us eyes to focus on the future beyond this present world. Renew in us your hope when we despair as we are surrounded by unjust social systems and moral cultural decline. Your gospel comes with the message that we have a sure and certain foundation that you will return to bring healing to all the nations. All people, including those who oppose you, Lord, will bow before you, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You have entrusted us with delivering the message of hope that comes with your kingship. The war that wages is not finished, even though you have already risen victorious, for our adversary is rebellious and foolish. Increase our endurance. May we glorify you in every way. To you, King Jesus, our Lord and Savior, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Hmm. I think I know now how the Pope feels when he's riding around in the Pope mobile. I told Ryan, uh, I don't know if that's sacrilegious to say in a Protestant church, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's really nice to be on the stage sharing the word with you guys in person. It's hard to think back, perhaps for some of us, to March, but it was that very first week uh, where in-person services had been canceled that I recorded that first teaching. And it seems like a different world we're living in now, doesn't it? But I'm humbled by this opportunity to worship with you in person. It's so great to be in the company of the saints, physically present where we can feel the the Spirit and see the Spirit's work in each other's lives. Amen? And growing up Baptist, especially, um, I feel good about cutting our teaching time from a robust one hour to a lean 25 minutes. It makes me feel right at home. That said, I don't have time for any more pleasantries or cheap jokes, so let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Have you ever had a conversation, and it's just going really casually, you're just having a normal conversation with someone, and then in the normal flow of conversation, that person interjects something that's so shocking to you that the conversation just keeps carrying on, and it takes you a second to be like, wait a second, I think I just, whoa. Now, this happens to me not infrequently at school. I'll be sitting at my desk, students will be working, and a student will come up to me and say, hey, Rob, how was your weekend? Oh, it was fine. Yeah, mine was good too. You know, I had some pizza, I was playing some video games, and then 
I spent the night in ER because my heart stopped. And then I came back to campus and played some more video games. And by the way, can I get help with this assignment? Oh, sure. I'd love to help you. Wait a second. Did you just say you were in the ER because your heart stopped? It's an actual conversation I've had with the student. But I picture Peter and the disciples kind of having that similar kind of moment as they heard what Jesus said was going to happen to the temple. They're walking out and they're like, hey, Jesus, look at these buildings. Oh, yeah, by the way, this building's going to be torn down brick by brick. Wait, what? Jesus, we need some clarification. So we'll get to the text here in a second. But I just want to highlight for you, if you missed last week's teaching, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to it. In it, Hans gave a great overview about how we think of eschatology at our church. And I hope you also heard in his teaching that we hold these views as kind of secondary issues. And even among the five elders, we have views that fall on varying points on the spectrum. And we want to continue emphasizing to you all that here at Mission, the community is one where we reason together from the scripture And we have unity around the gospel message. And I'm going to highlight that today. We have unity around the gospel message, but we want to feel comfortable disagreeing about these things that are fun to reason from, from scripture, but aren't necessary for salvation. And as Hans mentioned last week, Mark chapter 13 is the most debated chapter in the book of Mark. And so this morning, I want to do my best to show you what I think the author was trying to communicate to his original audience. But also, and equally important, I want to give us some things to think about as we apply this text to our lives here in 2020. A so what, if you will. Why should we care in light of this text? And so to do that, I want to present it along with a historical timeline. Because I think that will assist us in seeing this passage as it fits into the whole narrative of Scripture and where we fit in and how it fits in into the historical timeline. And I've titled today's teaching, Because Yahweh is King. Because Yahweh is King. So if you're with me, go ahead and flip to Mark 13. And I'm actually going to pick up in verse uh, 1, just to give a a little bit of a refresh on what we read last week. And then I'm just going to read through verse 4 right now. Mark 13, 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So the first thing we want to recognize about this passage is the setting. Jesus has made his proclamation against the temple and the temple system abundantly clear throughout Mark, especially in that verse, just uh, there in verse 2. He says, it's going to be destroyed, figuratively and literally destroyed. And as Hans pointed out last week, um, the location of the Mount of Olives being opposite the temple is significant because in the prophet Ezekiel, it's the spot where God looks back as he's leaving the temple. His presence is leaving the temple. And many Jewish hearers of this gospel would have seen the parallels from God leaving and Jesus leaving, the presence of God leaving the temple. And it's at this moment, four of his closest disciples pull Jesus aside and ask him the question. This is that moment when they go back to Jesus and they say, wait a second, 
Jesus, we were just having a conversation and we thought we heard you say the temple was going to be destroyed. Give us some more insight. What what are you talking about? And Jesus gives them kind of one of his classic non-answer answers. Now, if you'll indulge me here in a moment of imagination, imagine with me, if you will, you're one of those four disciples. If I'm putting myself into Peter's shoes this morning, in the back of my mind, at this point, I might be starting to panic a little bit. Because I would, I would remember back Jesus saying earlier that he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. And I was confused then, and I asked Jesus to clarify, and he said, well, I mean my body. So I'm thinking, okay, good, I got some clarity around that. I don't still really know what it means, but I kind of know. And then Jesus saying that he has to die. And I said, no, Jesus, not you. You don't have to die. And Jesus calls me Satan. So I'm thinking, well, geez, I'm not really sure what you're talking about, Jesus. And now, if I'm Peter, all I know is we rolled in to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus has just been throwing out shade left and right to all the religious leaders since they rolled into town. And now he's talking about the the physical temple being destroyed brick by brick. And so if I'm Peter, I'm thinking things are about to go from zero to 100 real quick. And as the author's intended audience, I might start to panic also. Because at this point, Jesus had made a huge claim, a huge claim that the temple would be destroyed. And as Peter had gone about preaching the gospel for 30 years before his message was physically recorded in the book of Mark, physically written down, the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. It was still there. So it was a bold prediction for Jesus to say that the temple that had been there for 500 years was going to come down brick by brick. And remember, it's significant because in Jewish thought at that time, the temple was the place where God's Shekinah glory stayed. The very spirit of God dwelt in the temple. It was like a portal, if you will, between heaven and earth, the place where those two realms met and Jesus met his people there. But I want to frame this conversation in a little bit further, and I want us to remember that we should view it from an eternal perspective. God is eternal. You see from eternity past all the way to eternity future, Jesus is king. Yahweh is king. He has never lost that position or title. That is unchanging. And so the part we're going to focus on is that that present day part. The space between eternity past and eternity future. The space between the wicked lies we tell to keep us safe from the pain. Let's frame this gospel in the gospel context. In the beginning, God created. Jade's is going to throw up the new timeline on there for us. And all he made was good. It's right there in Genesis. He was with Adam, God was, literally with them in the garden. There is unity between God and man. And then mankind chose rebellion against God as our authority and king. And as a result of our sin, we were thrown out of God's presence. And after a period of time, God calls Abraham out of a world lost in sin And he promises to use Abraham's family to bless the nations. But then, you guys know the story, lots of family dysfunction, lots of sin later. God's people end up in captivity in Egypt. And the Lord, through his spirit, 
in a cloud and in fire, guides the Israelites out of bondage and into the wilderness. And as more sin and idolatry ensue on the part of the Israelites, the Lord gives his people some laws and makes a covenant with them that they may continue in relationship with each other. And the Lord demonstrates his steadfast love and mercy to his people despite their various screw-ups. And he even dwells among them in the tabernacle. And finally, after 40 years of wandering, they come into the promised land, the land that Yahweh had promised Abraham way back in Genesis 12. But again, the people choose rebellion to God as their authority and insist on being just like the world, having an earthly king and ruler. And so the kingdoms of Israel and Judah are born into more sin, more rebellion, and more dysfunction. But the Lord continues to be gracious and merciful to the people. And he chooses a man after his own heart to lead the people, King David. And Yahweh even allows David's son Solomon to build a permanent dwelling place in Israel for his spirit to dwell. And this sacrificial system, along with the Levitical laws, observed in that temple, gave the Israelites the opportunity to continue in relationship with Yahweh in righteousness and justice. But we see as history repeats itself, the nation again rejects God's system and authority and follows hard after other gods. And as a result, the nation of Israel is captured, exiled, and Solomon's temple, the dwelling place of God on earth, is destroyed. And while in exile, Yahweh speaks to his people through the prophets, and he assures them that even though his temple has been destroyed, he has not abandoned them. He wants there to be repentance and a working of righteousness and justice that demonstrates that repentance. And eventually, a remnant of Israelites are allowed by their captors to return to Jerusalem, and they begin rebuilding the temple. But this time, it's not clear that the Spirit of the Lord is ever even there. The old men who had seen Solomon's temple and had witnessed God's glory firsthand, they weep. Because they could see that this temple was not full of the Spirit. It was different from the first. And Israel continues to press on in its sin despite being called back to repentance through the prophets. And eventually God goes silent. There is no word from Yahweh to Israel for 400 years. And so now we fast forward to 0 A.D., And the transcendent presence of Yahweh, the creator God, again becomes imminent in the form of the little baby, Jesus of Nazareth. And this God-man, Jesus, lives a perfect life and begins his ministry by being baptized by John the Baptist. Pat taught this passage to you from Mark only last November, believe it or not, even though it feels like a decade ago. And after that baptism, it is noted that the Spirit falls On Jesus like a dove. God's indwelling presence with mankind in Jesus the Christ. And then Jesus gives himself as a sacrifice. Willingly taking on himself the sin, rebellion, and separation that mankind deserved. And Jesus suffered 
and was crucified so that the righteousness and justice of a holy and living God might be satisfied. And he was buried in a tomb, and after three days he rose again, nullifying the effects of sin and death for those who follow him and submit to his rule as king. And after he had given his disciples some final instructions, he ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns to this day at the right hand of the Father. But not before he promised to pour out his Holy Spirit on his disciples, to be their helper in following after him in righteousness and justice. God's indwelling presence with humankind in his Holy Spirit, which works in and through his chosen people, his holy church, you and I, and in this body gathered here today. And one day Jesus will return to collect those who have followed him as king. And that's the gospel message. That is the framework. Forget futurist, forget preterist, forget all the other ists. That is the framework that we view everything through as disciples. You see, humankind, you and I, have repeatedly chose rebellion to God's rightful authority in our lives. And we deserve death. But God made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, for God and man to dwell together in unity. And if you haven't made that choice to follow Jesus as your king, if you want to know more what that looks like and what we mean when we say that here at Mission, please find me or one of the other elders after the service. We'd love to talk with you more about it. Now, I could stop there, and we could have literally the world's shortest teaching, and God would be glorified as we remember his steadfast love for us. But this is mission, so we're not going to stop there. We're going to keep going. But I want us to frame it with that, because that is central, right? The crucifixion, the resurrection, that is central to everything that we're talking about. You'll notice... On that timeline, after the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, these things that Jesus is going to talk about start to happen. So let's see what Jesus says is going to happen. Follow along with me in verse 5. Mark thirteen five, And as Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars... Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are but the beginning of birth pains. You see, false messiahs would come. There would be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, other natural disasters. But these things would be, as Jesus puts it, the beginning of the birth pains. And as anyone who has observed this process of birth that ultimately has a beautiful outcome, whether personally or in nature, can attest, the process of birth is ugly, it's tiring, it's messy, it's uncomfortable, and it's really kind of the ultimate mind blower. When we see it, we're like, how did that happen? How did that just happen? Like, we know how it happens, right? But how did that happen? A new life, something beautiful, something new. 
And I remember when my nephew, Russell, was born. My wife, Sarah, was going to be part of the birthing process with her sister. So she got a call one morning. And so, okay, contractions had started. We're headed to the hospital. Okay, great, we'll meet you there. And I had taken the day off work, and I'm on Charlotte duty all by myself. And so what I'm really thinking to myself is, gee, it'd be really nice if Danielle could just go in, you know, one hour later, pop this baby out, and we'd be all, all be on our merry way. That would be fantastic. But little did I know at that time that 10-pound babies require a little bit of coaxing before they want to come out. The birth pains can drag on for quite some time. So long story short, the end result after a painful amount of time, not for me, but for my sister-in-law, was a beautiful baby boy. And that's why I call him Rusty, because he took so long to come out that all of his baby toys had started to rust. You see, Jesus is setting expectations here. He's letting the disciples know this is just the beginning. But the end result is something beautiful, something we've all been expecting and waiting for, anticipating our salvation realized. And if you look back at that timeline, you'll see these things that Jesus is talking about happening. There was a couple of big earthquakes in 61 and 62 AD in Turkey and Pompeii. There was a famine across the world in AD 49. You can check that out in Acts eleven twenty-eight. There were false messiahs. You can see these mentioned specifically in Acts 5, 36 and 37. There would be wars all over the world, including between Herod Antipas and what is now the country of Jordan, and between Rome and Parthia and what is now Iran. And those happened shortly after the crucifixion of Christ. But remember, Jesus tells his disciples, this this is just the beginning of the birth pains. This is just how the process goes. This is just part of normal living. There will always be these things. Just for kicks while I was studying, I did a search on wars from 0 AD to present. And it takes four full Wikipedia pages of just row by row by row by row by row by row by row of wars to get from 0 AD to present day. That's a lot of war. That's a lot of death and destruction. A lot of innocent people killed. A lot of dragging the image of God through the mud and how we treat others who are created in the image of God. Perhaps some of you may have seen the show Waco on Netflix. Others of you remember when that event happened, the Branch Davidians. David Koresh claimed he was the Messiah. He claimed to have special revelation from God. And that was only 27 years ago. Someone here in the good old U.S. of A. claiming to be the Jewish Messiah. And so it goes. And so it goes. But Jesus continues on in verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. 
But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who will speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is still speaking to his disciples here. And he basically says to these four fellows, Guys, I hope you packed your first aid kit, because it's about to get rough. You see, to Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and the other disciples, and to the first century audience that Mark is writing to, there would be no such thing as a rapture. No such thing as a get-out-of-suffering-free card. In fact, the author makes it clear that the contrary is about to happen. That disciples should expect suffering to occur. And they should prepare themselves to face it head-on, not avoid it. Just as their rabbi, Jesus, was handed over to suffer, and he faced it head-on. Let's look at Acts together. So just to the right in your Bibles. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And this is about Stephen. Stephen was one of the early disciples. He was selected after Jesus had ascended to serve the church as a deacon. And Stephen, it says in verse 8, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he is speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. You see, it says right there, Stephen was filled with the indwelling presence of God by the Holy Spirit. He spoke truthfully to the Jewish leaders just as Jesus had, especially, apparently, from the text about the destruction of the temple. And as a result, he was handed over, he was arrested, beaten, and stoned. Look ahead to chapter 8, verse 1. In Acts, Acts 8, verse 1, says, And Saul approved of his execution, the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You see, the stoning of Stephen was the start of the great persecution of the Christian church. But look at what happens as a result. Up to that point, the church had stayed local in Jerusalem. But now it was scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. We see later, just a few verses down in chapter 8 of Acts, that Philip's 
Philip becomes the first international missionary. And he preaches the gospel in Samaria. And later to an Ethiopian official who takes the gospel out of Israel with him. Paul and the other apostles carried the gospel message from Jerusalem all the way to Spain, up into Russia, over to India, down into Africa, and all throughout the known world. All of the apostles, with the exception of John, and he's not getting off the hook here because he was exiled to an island after being dipped in a vat of hot oil, they were all martyred. They were all killed in gruesome ways because of their faith in Christ. But not a single one of them renounced Jesus as their king. To be sure, they endured till the end and they were saved into eternity with their king. And once this persecution had started in the early church, it was common practice for the Romans, especially under Emperor Nero, to blame Christians for everything wrong in the empire. And they would find church members who were disgruntled for one reason or another, and they would bribe these folks to sell out their fellow Christians. And then these Christians who had been sold out would end up imprisoned, beaten, executed, thrown to the lions in the arena. Indeed, brother would deliver brother over unto death. And all of these things Jesus said would be the beginnings of the birth pains and the continuation of these pains happened shortly after his ascension. Hans is going to pick up Jesus' answer next week. And I think after that teaching, it will become plain that these things were fulfilled in 70 AD as the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and burned the temple. And when they captured the temple, they set it on fire. And the fire burned so hot that it burned the gold colonnades in the trim in the temple. And that gold melted and ran down in between the stones. And because the Romans are greedy, they spent time knocking over every stone and chiseling out the gold. Literally not one stone was left upon another, just as Jesus had said. And the great irony is that these treasures recovered from Jerusalem were celebrated in Rome. When the victors got back, they created this grand archway depicting the capture of temple treasures. It's called the Arch of Titus. It still sits next to the Colosseum. But not only that, they used the gold to finance the building of the Colosseum. Where many Christians would have their hope, obedience, and endurance tested. And many Christians would ultimately be saved into eternity with their king. But for us, disciples living after the destruction of the temple, after these things that Jesus predicted have been fulfilled, what can we take away from this? What can we take away from this? Take a look at that timeline there. From 70 AD to 2020 AD, almost 2,000 years. False messiahs, war, earthquakes, famine, persecution, pandemics, 
economic meltdowns, etc., etc., etc. I mean, it feels like 2020 is in a class of its own, right? Having living, living in it right now. But it's honestly pretty mild compared to some recent years, even as recently as 1918. If you want to know what that is like, multiply the death and destruction of the pandemic by tenfold and then add a world war on top. And that would be 1918. You see, these aren't new things. The writer of Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. This is a result of the sin and brokenness, the rebellion that we choose. False messiahs, war, earthquakes, famine, persecution. Jesus' prediction about the temple was fulfilled in AD 70, but his comments have an evergreen quality about them. This is not just the norm this is just the normal consequence of sin and rebellion. And the universe itself is groaning with pains as it expectantly awaits the birth of a new heaven and a new earth. Where all of creation is rightly returned to unity under Jesus our King. And so we cry out alongside of creation, Jesus, come soon. But at the same time, we take Jesus' words to heart to his disciples. And we pack up our first aid kit. And we prepare ourselves to live in our current reality. To face these circumstances head on. And it's because Jesus has paved the way for us. And because Yahweh is king, that we can face the trials head on. Because Yahweh is king, we have eternal hope. Because Yahweh is king, we have eternal hope. I found myself feeling very frustrated at various points over the last few months. And even this week, as I was preparing this message... And I realized that a large portion of my frustration was due to my misplaced hope. I've hoped that I would be a more patient father. I've hoped that the virus-related restrictions wouldn't be necessary anymore. I've hoped that our political system would be less polarizing. I've hoped... That is image bearers of the creator God. That humanity would treat each other as such. Bearers of the image of the eternal God of the universe. And I've realized that I'm trying to control these things. I'm trying to put my hope in other people to control these things. And it's misplaced hope. Because our only true hope is in the cross and resurrection. Remember that framework, that gospel framework. Our hope is that Yahweh has adopted us in as daughters and sons to be fellow heirs with Christ. And so what I would ask you to think about this morning, is there anything you've put your hope in that isn't Jesus crucified and resurrected? Is there anything you've tried to control through what you've hoped in? And I'd ask you, brothers and sisters, just as I did this week, cry out before the Lord. 
for his hope to fill you, to remind you of his death and resurrection, and to let go of trying to control the world and experience the peace of God that comes from a hope rooted in a righteousness that we could never earn but was freely given to us. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans. Romans 8. Romans 8.15 says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So are we waiting patiently with the hopeful expectation that Jesus will return for us? Are we waiting patiently with hopeful expectation? My second point this morning is this. Because Yahweh is king, we follow Jesus' example of obedience. Because Yahweh is king, we follow Jesus' example of obedience. Jesus tells his disciples in his answer about the temple that what they are about to face will be costly. It will lead to lots of death and destruction. But they need to stay the course. But before he expects it of them, he walks down that road first himself. And this has been very convicting for me as a father and as an elder of this church. Where do I expect obedience before I model it first? Where am I asking for something that I haven't already freely given? You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus is asking for your obedience only because he's done it himself. And so my question is, where do we need to allow conviction to enter into our lives to bring about obedience? Where have we hardened our hearts to God's word? Where have we hardened our hearts to God's people? I pray that we would have soft hearts this morning. Philippians 2 is probably the most oft-quoted passage in this church. For good reason. Philippians 2 verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, 
being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus was God, but he still submitted to the authority of Yahweh. The authority that asked him for costly obedience. And we know that this obedience was justified. That that submission to the authority was justified because it produces good fruit. Indeed, even eternal life. We see Jesus resurrected from the dead. His obedience produced eternal life. And we know that obedience to Yahweh will produce the same fruit in us. Even eternal life. Because Yahweh is king, we can endure trials of many kinds. Because Yahweh is king, we can endure trials of many kinds. Jesus tells the disciples that the one who endures all of the pains of living until the end will be saved. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat the reality. He doesn't say, oh, it'll be so nice, disciples. Your life will be comfortable and easy. He paints the truth plainly for them. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world, he tells them. But again, he doesn't leave them hopeless without a way forward. He models endurance until the end for them. And then he sends his spirit to help them. To help us endure. Second Corinthians four. Second Corinthians four, verse seven. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see, we carry about us the suffering and the death of Christ, so that we fade away and so that Christ can be observed in us. Brothers and sisters, what kind of trials are you facing right now? What is perplexing you? What are you feeling crushed by? 
What anxieties do you have? How can the Spirit acting in this church help you face that trial? The indwelling Spirit of God is here with us in this body. He has not left us hopeless without a way forward. Brothers and sisters, you are not alone. We are one body under one spirit, under the authority of one King, Jesus. And if there's something that you're facing this morning, spiritual, physical, relational, let your brothers and sisters know so that we can stand alongside you. Allow us to minister to you through the Spirit. Mission Fellowship, Yahweh is on his throne. No pandemic, no global meltdown, no swarm of murder hornets is going to change that. And because Yahweh is our holy and loving God, our King, our Lord, may we have hope in him. And may we willingly follow Jesus' example of obedience. And may that obedience lead us to faithful endurance by his spirit. Amen? Amen.